titled the sermon, The Greatest Commandment and the Greatest Challenge. And Dan already alluded to this great challenge. That's kind of our theme this morning, just to kind of cut to the chase. Loving God in the way that He desires to be loved is a great challenge. It's intended to be that way. And we'll get more into that as we get into the sermon. Remember at this point that many have come to question Jesus. Not with pure motives, but to trap Him. It's a good thing for somebody with a humble heart to ask Jesus questions. Because there is much we do not know. And He knows everything. He's a good guy to go to with your questions. As long as you're humble and willing to accept the answer and what that's going to mean for your life. But these folks were not really asking him questions, looking for answers. Their intent was to trap him in front of the people, embarrass Jesus, or get him to say things that were unlawful. They wanted him gone, they wanted him dead, because he was upsetting their power structure. He was becoming very popular with the people. And the religious leaders sensed that they were going to lose their position of power. And so they wanted to kill him. We see that many times in the Gospels, and yet they were afraid of the people because Jesus was popular. So let me read to you from Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all, or what commandment is the greatest of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and all, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So we see this morning a great question. A great question really is a great question. What is the greatest commandment? And lots of questions have been brought to Jesus, and we've been looking at those questions the last couple months. None of them have been brought to him with a pure heart. These weren't people actually seeking answers to these questions. They were questions, again, designed to undermine Jesus' authority and his ministry. We, from this side of the cross and with the Bible, get to see the behind-the-scenes motives of the heart, and yet the questions are still instructive for us. For one thing, we know don't do that. 
don't come to Jesus with dishonest questions. Questions we already know the answer to, but we just want Jesus to tell us what we want to hear. Don't do that. We know that. But we've learned some great theology from these questions and Jesus' answers. Let's go over some of them. Um, a while back, remember the rich young ruler asking, what must I do to, to uh, enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answered him. And uh, the man said, oh, that's great. I've kept all the commandments from my youth. From my youth. And Jesus said, great. Oh, wait, one more thing. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. He knew the man's heart, knew that his God was money and was stripping his idol away from him, exposing the man's heart out of love because the man was going to have to repent from his love of money uh, if he was going to enter the kingdom. That man wasn't actually asking that question, humbly seeking the answer. He assumed he was in the kingdom. He was just asking Jesus to, um, to recognize and acknowledge what the man already knew about himself. And he went away very sad, the scripture said, because he had a lot of money. And money was his God. The next time we get a question is after Jesus cleanses the temple. And they come to him and say, what gives you the authority to cleanse the temple like this? Who gives you the right to come in here and do that? And they were looking for Jesus to say, I have my own authority or I have God's authority and they would be able to charge him with blasphemy, which was punishable by death. Instead, Jesus said, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was that from man or from God? And they reasoned amongst themselves that if we say it's from God, they're going to ask us, then why didn't you get baptized? Why didn't you believe in John's baptism, which included faith in Jesus? Remember, John said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. And so they said, if we say from God, we're in trouble. But if we say from man, we're in trouble because everybody likes John, the Baptist. So what did they answer? We don't know. They took the coward's way out. We don't know. So when Jesus asks us a question, don't do that. Don't do that. That's instructive for us. There's no, we don't know. When it's clear you do know what Jesus is asking us to do, you can't give him the I don't know. If you truly don't know, then say so with humility and then go find out. Go find out. So now they realize they're up against somebody a little smarter than they thought. So all the religious leaders, all the smart, the erudite, the sophisticated, the learned, get together and say, all right, we're each going to take turns. We'll, we'll nail this guy. We'll take him down. So the Herodians come first with the Pharisees, who, by the way, hated each other. But today they were friends because they had a common enemy. Funny how that happens. They were both afraid they were going to lose their positions of power. They liked the, the way things were set up. Everybody had their place. Everybody had their 
position of authority, everyone had their power, and everyone had their source of income because of their position of power. And Jesus was upsetting the apple cart, and nobody liked it. So the Herodians who were loyal to King Herod and the Pharisees who did not like King Herod get together with this question about taxes. Should we or should we not pay taxes? You ask someone a question that only has two possible answers, and you've entrapped them because neither answer was going to be popular. If Jesus said, yes, pay your taxes, well, who likes to pay taxes? But it was worse than that then because Caesar's image was on the coin, and they felt that that was tantamount to blasphemy, to disobeying the first and second commandment that you shall have no other gods before me, and you will still not make any graven images. So to pay taxes to this man calling himself a god, the Jews was, were not for that. And they didn't like paying taxes. If Jesus said, don't pay the taxes, the people would be happy, but the Herodians would bring charges against Jesus of insurrection and leading a rebellion against the state. So... Jesus seems trapped, but come on, it's Jesus. Like they're really going to be able to trap him. And he says, give me a denarius. Whose image is on it? He said, Caesar's. And he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, God has ordained human authority and governments. God is sovereign over the sovereigns. Pay your taxes. Do you not use roads? The aqueduct system, does not the Roman army protect you? Yes, they also persecute you. But you live in this time, in this place, in this season. Pay your taxes. More importantly, render to God what is God's. Well, what is God's? Everything. And what does he demand of his people? Everything. All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not just sacrifices, but obedience is what the Lord desires. And so they didn't trap him with that question. In fact, he kind of made them look foolish. So they're hurt, they're hurting, they're, they're stinging with embarrassment that they've been one upped. So they bring in the Sadducees next, and the Sadducees try to embarrass Jesus the way they've just been embarrassed. And Mike Borsier did a wonderful job expositing uh, this passage. The point being, the Sadducees said, we'll come and embarrass Jesus and we'll make up this, this story, this hypothetical situation where a man is married, he, he, um, he dies, and his brother, according to the Levitical law, has to marry his brother's widow and take care of her, but then he dies, and the next brother, and on and on it goes for seven brothers. And it's this ridiculous situation that would never happen, but it's all designed to embarrass Jesus. Rhetoricians and logicians call this uh, reductio ad absurdum, to reduce your opponent's argument to absurdity. Take his own argument and show the crowd how absurd it is. So 
Jesus preaching that there's going to be a resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection because they only paid attention to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. If they couldn't find it there, then they didn't believe it or teach it, and in fact they mocked it and scoffed at it. And they would make such arguments as, how are you going to get a bodily resurrection when somebody's been incinerated, right? How's that going to work? And all kinds of ridiculous type arguments. The kind of arguments you hear at the local Starbucks from the scoffers. Can God make a rock too heavy for him to pick up? You know, hey, put, put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know, and you're like, why would God want to make a rock bigger than he could lift? That doesn't even make sense. It's a, it's a stupid question. So I'm not even going to answer it. Um, these kinds of things dishonor God. Paul said, stay away from these old wives' tales and fables and endless genealogies and debates over nothing. And so that's what the Sadducees were attempting to do. And Jesus, knowing they came to make him look foolish, make them look foolish. First he says, you are greatly mistaken, which in the Greek captures the sense of, you're like people wandering around in the dark lost. That's the verb there in the Greek. You are aimlessly wandering in your thinking. Then he really adds insult to injury and says, you are mistaken because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Haven't you read about the time Moses? Now, these are the people who tell the world, we know Moses. If anyone knows Moses, we know Moses. And for Jesus to say, hey, you know that story about Moses? I don't think you do. You know, the one at the burning bush where he asks God his name and God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of the living, not the dead. So death is not the final story. There is a resurrection. And he said, you know that God of the Old Testament, you know the one, I'm paraphrasing here, who created everything out of nothing? Well, you don't think... He can make a resurrection body, you know, kind of. And you're the teachers of Israel, you know that. Oh, boy, they, you know. Where did where did we find these guys? And so we have much to learn from there. Be humble about your questions. Not everything makes sense to us. We we know a little. We know enough for life and godliness and salvation, but we don't have all the answers. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but those that belong to us and our children, God has revealed those things to us. I know we long to know about things we don't. The Christian book market is saturated with stories of people who almost died and went to heaven and came back with wonderful tales of what heaven's going to be like. And yet, the Bible tells us what heaven's going to be like, right? But we love to buy those books because we want to know. And yet, all those tales to me come woefully short of what heaven's actually going to be like because the God who could create this amazing planet has got to have something so mind-blowing for us 
that it won't even come close to what we experience here. So when you read these tales of people going to heaven and coming back, and it sounds a lot like earth, only a little bit more cleaned up, I don't, I don't think so. I hope it's better than that. I hope it's better than that. So when Paul went to the highest heaven and came back and said, God forbid me to talk about it, that's good enough for me. The God who created everything out of nothing can certainly do amazing and wonderful things in heaven. And if that means I'm not going to be married, which is sad to me, but he's got something even better for Jennifer and I, our relationship will far exceed our earthly relationship. I, I can trust in that. And I can't wait to see what that is like because it's pretty good now. <laughs> I was not compelled or bribed or threatened <laughs> to say that that is, that is the truth. Well said. So, lesson being, we tend to create our own theology and then ask Jesus to put his rubber stamp on it. Don't do that. Don't be a Sadducee. Okay. So now, we're down to the scribes. And who are the scribes? They're the lawyers. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> and I don't think people's view of lawyers were much different than it is to today. Because... They knew the law, they studied the law, and if you know the law and study the law and you have a whole legal system set up where the lawyers get to determine the law and define the law and explain the law, that's a lot of power, right? And a lot of power to, um, to get rich, a lot of power to manipulate, take advantage of folks, and that's what a lot of the scribes were like. They were experts in the law of Moses. You know, well, how did they get to be a scribe? Who gets to be a scribe? Well, the scribes and the rabbis picked the brightest and youngest or most connected kids, and they pick them, and they go to the, the school. The, they follow a rabbi, and they get this training. And uh, it's a lot like getting into an Ivy League school uh, today. And now the scribes said that there were 613 laws in the Law of Moses. 613. Don't bother going through your Bible and adding them up for yourself because they got this number by adding up the letters in the Hebrew of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. There's 613 Hebrew letters, so there must be 613 laws. You know, it's like, where did they come up with that? They just did. And um, 365 negative commandments, possibly one for each day of the solar calendar, and that leaves 248 positive commandments. Because it's difficult for people to memorize and obey that many laws, it was popular for the rabbis to come up with pithy statements to kind of encapsulate and summarize the law of Moses. And then you were known for whatever um, view you took. And you'd say, I'm in this camp or I'm in this camp very much like it is today. Are you a federalist? Are you a strict um, construct, uh, constructionist as far as the, uh, the um, Constitution goes? Or do you think it's a living document that ought to be changed and reformed? Don't answer out loud. <laughs> These are rhetorical questions. But I'm just showing that uh, not much has changed. Nothing new is under the sun. 
One uh, line that I read that especially got me laughing was the popular rabbi of that day, Hillel, Hillel, was once uh, asked by somebody that he was trying to convert to Judaism. He said, Rabbi Hillel, tell me the whole law of God while I stand on one foot and I'll become a proselyte, you know, I'll convert. Knowing that there's just so much law and it's so much so complicated that I don't want to be a Jew. There's too many laws. You know, there's no way you could tell me the whole law while I stand on one foot. And so Hillel says, What you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go learn. <laughs> I, I, I just love that. I can just imagine these rabbis, that's, you know, the way they, they would teach. It was always one-upsmanship. Who was the cleverest, the most pithy statements, the most popular. And so at this time, it was popular to kind of narrow the law down to easier to digest ways of thinking about the law. So there were heavy laws and light laws. So these are the really important ones. These are the not-so-important ones. You know. Well, then there was arguments over what? Well, which, which ones are the heavy ones and which ones are the light ones? So then you've got more camps. And, and you know, it just created an environment for endless argument and debate. In the meantime, what's not getting done? The law being obeyed and God being loved. There was great disagreement over which laws were most important, not too different from churches today and different denominations and what's more important, you know. So they were trying to trap Jesus into making some kind of unorthodox statement or tipping his hand to figure out what camp he was in. Oh, he's in so-and-so's camp. Well, that just now means half the population is against him. You know, so they were trying to divide and conquer here. So what is Jesus' answer? It's a great answer. It was a great question. When asked with a pure heart, in this case the scribe I do not think was asking with, from a pure heart, because in Matthew's Gospel we read, in between the Sadducees and the scribe coming, the leaders reconvened for one more plot. And I think this was the guy that was appointed to go and, uh, and try to trap Jesus. So Jesus answered, the greatest commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Where did he get this from? Let me introduce you to the Shema. The Shema is the great prayer of the Hebrew people. Um, it's in three parts. The one we're familiar with is that Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. You know the one that we read at all the baby dedications. Uh, you shall love the Lord with all your God, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your... They don't say mind in the Old Testament. They just say heart, soul, strength. Jesus adds mind here. I wouldn't read too much into that. The whole point being your whole being. Love God entirely with all that you are. Okay? And so Jesus quotes the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew verb for to hear or listen with the intent to obey. 
So the Shema starts off with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Wehavta et Yahweh Elaheka. You shall love the Lord your God. Bakol Lavavka, Bakol Nafshka, Bakol Meodeka. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And on and on it would go. In fact, it was the first thing that Hebrew children would learn from the scriptures. And they would hear their parents reciting the Shema every day. Very ritualistic, very liturgical. This is a prayer we must pray every day. And we love this prayer here in the church because it really talks about loving God with all your being. How do you do that? How do you love the Lord your God with all your being? He says, these commandments I give you today, do them and impress them on the hearts of your children. Pretty hard to teach your children to obey God if you're not doing it yourself. You can talk about it, but if you're not modeling it, then it's just not going to happen. So God wants to be loved by us trusting Him and obeying His commandments. Trusting that His commandments are good for us. And so we want to obey our God. It's a wonderful thing to think about loving the Creator of the universe. It's wonderful because He loved us first. And in all other religions around the world... This is a completely foreign concept, that God loves His people. God loves His people. It is the essence, really, of Christianity, what sets us apart from everyone else. God loves His people and wants us to love Him and made a way for us to love Him by loving us in the highest form of love, self-sacrificial love. Jesus said, greater love hath no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 1 Kings 8.23 O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. That is from Solomon's prayer of dedication when the temple was completed. A God who loves his people Radical, probably even scandalous in a lot of cultures. Probably the reason why it's so hard to evangelize in some cultures. Like God who loves his people. And yet, it's our greatest tool of evangelism. Yes, a God who loves his people. He loves you. He really loves you. The pagan gods are evil and malevolent. They're often requiring human sacrifice. What kind of love is that? You kill your kids for me. Our God killed his own son for us. That's love. The Roman gods were fickle and capricious and liked to just mess with humanity just for the fun of it. What kind of God does that? Not our God. There's a purpose and plan and a good purpose behind everything he does. The Hindu gods are distant and difficult to please. Buddhism's impersonal. God's more of a force, like an energy. 
False gods are either made in man's image so that they tell us exactly what we want to hear because they're gods of our own imagination. Or they are demonic creations, Paul tells us. There's demonic activity behind a lot of idolatry designed to pervert God's truth. For example, again, demanding that you sacrifice your children. That is demonic and satanic. And so, the Shema reminded people that they had a God who chose them and placed His love on them and desired love in return. How does God want to be loved then? Do we get to just decide how we love God? Do you like it when the people in your life decide, no, 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 let me tell you how you want to be loved. You know, that's why the Love Languages book is, is so popular. You know, we like to be loved in certain ways, and we want people to love us in that way. God says, it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, that He will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain, which you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil, and on and on that part of the Shema goes. So here's a God who loves us and wants to be obeyed and served, not because He's petty not because he's vindictive, not because he's the great dictator in the sky as the atheist in God is not dead said, but because his commandments are good and they, they bring about great good and blessing in our life. Our commandments for ourselves, we think would be better for ourselves, would make us happier, but they lead to disappointment They lead to um, broken relationships because of that kind of selfish love. It's hard to even say selfish and love in the same sentence. Selfishness is the antithesis of love. Love gives. Selfishness takes. How else does God expect to be loved? The third part of the Shema, Numbers 15.37, talks about putting... Uh, blue tassels as a reminder of God's commandments. And often there would be like a string for each commandment, kind of like a rosary, you know, a reminder. God says it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Interesting that God would bring in that imagery into the Shema, into the Jews' most important prayer. That when we fail to obey God and we chase after idols, it's tantamount to harlotry, to prostitution, to adultery. Very strong language. Could you imagine, like, our most important Protestant prayer, including the word W-H-O-R-E? I don't even want to say it in church. Here it is in the Jews' most holy prayer. Don't play the harlot. 
don't play the harlot. Book of Hosea, Hosea the prophet, to preach judgment to the people of Israel, God says, you're going to marry this woman and she's going to cheat on you in very public ways and you're going to stay married to her. And she's going to do it again and again. And you're going to be publicly humiliated in an honor-shame society where if a woman cheated on you that way, it was often punishable by stoning and public stoning. And yet God says, this is exactly how my people treat me. And yet I stay faithful to them. I don't throw them out in the street. I'm a faithful husband. See, we want the blessing from God without the obedience. And yet the obedience is the blessing. We just can't get that through our heads. We hate obeying other people. We want to obey ourselves and our own urges and our own desires. And yet God wants to supplant our evil desires with holy desires. The time when you were regenerated and became a believer, God instantaneously not only made you fit for heaven, but began the process of changing your desires with His desires. Things that you found entertaining, you now find profane. Things that you chased after, you now find empty and you want to chase after God. It doesn't happen completely at that point, but you do get a whole new mindset or a whole new heart set. Is it wrong for God to expect and demand to be loved in this way? Anyone else in the universe who demanded this kind of love, that would be wrong, certainly. But God is not like anyone else in the universe. He does deserve this kind of love, and not only deserves it, but as Jonathan Edwards taught and the hallmark of John Piper's ministry, when you learn to desire God this way is when you find your greatest joy. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever by desiring Him and enjoying Him. When obeying God's commands becomes so real to you that you realize, I'm going to get my greatest joy out of doing this. I said, (laughs) let me repeat myself. Thank you for putting that on the T for me. God is worthy to be loved in this way. He died for us to prove that He loves us in this way, in a sacrificial way. He died for us to free us from our desire to love ourselves this way. And He died and rose again for us to empower us to love Him this way. We all love something. The problem is that something is ourselves. God's love and command to love Him and love others frees us from the dungeon that is loving yourself and desiring to have your own way. It promises life to get your own way, but it delivers death every time. Show me a selfish, self-absorbed person and I will show you one of the unhappiest people on the planet. 
Show me a servant and those who spend their time loving others and thinking about meeting other people's needs. And I'll show you somebody with a huge smile on their face. Unless they're doing it to impress God or earn His love. And then it becomes a different type of dungeon. Legalism and, and um, self-righteousness. Oof. It's not only a bad dungeon, it's a stinky dungeon. Nobody likes to be around that dungeon. So how does God expect to be loved? Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you know you love God? You have a desire to keep His commandments. And yet, if any of us have deceived ourselves into thinking that we do love God this way perfectly, Jesus adds a second commandment. You know, right, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I can do that. I totally do that. Okay, oh, one more thing. I want you to love your neighbor like you love yourself. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Notice this isn't three commandments. It's not love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. The one thing we already do really well is love yourself. In spite of 40 years of psychology that's come into the church teaching us we can't love others till we learn to love ourselves first. The Bible for 2,000 plus years has been telling us, no, the problem is you already love yourself too much. That's the problem. It's not a command to love self. It's a command to take that, that special care we take care of ourselves with and extend it to others. It's the way we all like to be loved, Right? We love it when our loved ones plan special events for us and think of special ways to express love to us. That's how Jesus wants us to love one another. Remember Hillel's comment? Here's, here's the great commandment. Don't do to other people what you don't want done to you. You know, I'll leave you alone, you leave me alone. I won't annoy you, you don't annoy me. That's not love. We don't even do that well, by the way. You know, if we at least got that right, we could all tolerate one another. But we don't even do that really well. And yet Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the golden rule, the way you're used to hearing it now, but the way Hillel phrased it was the standard way the golden rule was thought of. Historians and theologians have looked at all cultures of the world and they all have the golden rule in the negative. Don't do to people what you don't want done to yourself. And this is kind of the way we teach our kids when they're little. Do you like having your toys taken from you? No, then don't take your brother's. You know, it's like a, it's a negative golden rule. As they get older and they, they become regenerate and saved and they're growing in the Lord, now you're like, okay, you got to take it the next step. You, know, you got to love your brother the way you want to be loved. That's a lot harder than just leaving people Alone, But Jesus said the whole law and the prophets is summed up in, in that. Love people the way you want to be loved. 
and really love God the way you would like to be loved. Jesus took Deuteronomy 6 and blended it with Leviticus 19.18, and those were the two great commandments. I'm glad he put in the second command. Otherwise, I would deceive myself into thinking that I really do love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because it's easy to say love, but it's hard to do love. Easy to say love, hard to do love. You knew that. When you first started dating, and then, oh, I love, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then after the honeymoon, well, when is she going to start loving me? When's he going to start loving me? You know, what happened to all the special you know, special little cards and treats and all those kinds of things. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize we were loving that person during the courting because of the way they made us feel about ourselves. You said, I love you, but you were really demonstrating what? I love the way you make me feel about myself. So really, I love me. And then they stop making you feel that way about yourself, and you're like, oh, they don't love me anymore. And I'm not feeling love for them. And it's like, well, no, they're just not making you feel special anymore, and you're ready to move on to the next person who will make you feel special. So Jesus says, why don't you work on making each other feel special? Give the other person what you want, and that's love. Oh, and by the way, a byproduct of that is you'll probably end up getting the thing that you desired through the back door, but when you demand it, it's no longer loving. And nobody wants to give someone love who's saying, love me, love me, love me. You will love me this way. Well, I was going to, but now that you said that, you know, I, you just ruined it. It's not spontaneous if it's a command. So why does God command us to love him? Again, he's not petty. He's not up there going, oh, I sure wish somebody would love me. The Trinity has been around with each other, loving each other perfectly for all eternity. God commands us to love him because it's what's best for us. It's his way of loving us. Loving me in this way will bring you the most amount of happiness and joy and, and love. Also because God would never command us to do something that we do naturally. So he has to command us to love him because we wouldn't if he didn't. So anyone who claims they love God but hates their brother, does, they don't have the loving God thing down. It's not, well, I have the loving God thing down, but not so much the loving my brother. No, Jesus says through the Apostle John, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that one, the one who loves God should love his brother also. So here's the challenge. How are you doing at loving your brother, at loving your neighbor, at loving your spouse, at loving family, your children? your enemies. Let's not delude ourselves into thinking we have the I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength thing down.
You see, if you're not loving somebody well, they'll tell you about it. Whereas when you're not loving God well, you have to listen to that still, small voice. Okay? Human people don't have a still, small voice. They just tell you. (laughs) Or their body language tells you. Or their tone of voice tells you. Or their deafening silence tells you that you're not loving them the way they want to be loved. And so you know. And yet with God, we delude ourselves into thinking we do love Him because we haven't trained our ear to hear from Him. We have a little list in our mind of the things I have to do to prove that I love God. And it's a short checklist, and it happens to be all the things that we're really good at doing anyways. But when God asks us to do something we're not so good at, and we don't do naturally, it tells us how far we have to go to love God. So we have a choice. We can be pharisaical and keep our list short and sweet into the things we're good at, or we could saturate our minds with Scripture, and that will force us to our knees, begging God for mercy. God, I don't love you the way I want to and the way you deserve. Lord, I can't wait till heaven until my sin is finally eradicated and I can give you the love you deserve. Your spirit living in me groans to love you and worship you perfectly. The ultimate defining characteristics of a true Christian are summed up in these commandments. Christians are people who are loved by God and know they ought to love God above all else and love our neighbors. Love defines the Christian. A Christian also recognizes that he doesn't love God and his neighbor in the way he ought. So there's acknowledgement of sin, there's confession of sin, there's remorse, there's contrition of heart. We don't parade our ability to love to the world. It'd be false. Thirdly, a Christian knows that he needs God's grace and forgiveness. He puts his faith in Christ for this grace and forgiveness and in Christ alone. This ought to be the hallmark of the true Christian, a humble person who knows he doesn't do what he ought, but by God's grace, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Because God has already done the hardest thing for me, which is live that perfect life and taken the penalty for my sin. Therefore, I am freed from the penalty of sin and empowered now to live the kind of life God's calling me to live. Not perfectly, not in this side of heaven, but to honor God and show my love for Him and my thanks for Him and my trust that His commandments are going to be good for me. I live a life seeking to obey His commands. This is the summary of the Christian life. It's what we should be to the world. Jesus said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It ought to be shocking to the world the way Christians love one another. Because people don't love this way. But when they ask you, where did you get that kind of love? 
you can tell them about Jesus. So the scribe answers Jesus with a great confession. He says, you're right. Now, when we make that great confession, it should sound like this. You're right. I acknowledge you are truth. You know what the greatest commandment is. Unfortunately, I think the way it came out of the scribe's mouth was, Hey, little guy, you're right. Little rabbi. Good answer. Well done. I approve heartily of your answer. You get an A. Because that's the position the scribe is used to being in, sitting in judgment over others. But again, let this be instructive to our own hearts. If we're honest with ourselves, often we do that. We read the scripture, and then we decide whether or not God is right about that. And then we we agree with them. But if we're deciding after we read and think about and cogitate, then who's sitting over whom? Aren't we sitting in judgment over God? We have to come to the scriptures and say, no matter what I come up with, God, you're the way, the truth, and the life. You're right. And if I come to a different conclusion, I'm wrong. Or I've misinterpreted the scripture, but Behind these words is absolute truth and righteousness. Be very careful, brothers and sisters, not to put God on trial. In fact, that's the thing I liked least about the God is not dead movie. We're going to put God on trial. Don't do that. Don't even say it. I understand what he was trying to do, but whether or not we're witnessing to an atheist or to people, whether or not whatever they come up with as their answer really doesn't change the fact that God is God and He is judge and He is righteous and He is true. The bottom line, though, is that the scribe recognized honestly and truthfully that loving God and others is better than burnt offerings and sacrifices, which really do Nothing for anyone. Much better giving your money to our missionaries than burning it when you get home. Put it to good use. Love AJ and Jessica and love those people in Poland and Romania through your gifts. When those kids over there say, how much money did you have to raise to come over here? Why would you do that? And who would give you money to do such a thing, to go minister to people they've never met. What a great platform for talking about God's love. You know, we've been watching that Disney movie Frozen like way too much in our house. These songs, which were like great songs. My wife says the first 300 times we heard them. And for a Disney movie, they actually finally got something right. You know, it wasn't True Love's Kiss, not to be, you know, spoiler alert, but self-sacrificial love is the greatest demonstration of love. Of course, the Bible's been teaching us that for a long, long, long time. We don't need Disney to teach us that. But it's 
interesting to me that the world recognizes, yes, that laying down your life for others is true love, but how many of us really would want to do that? I might jump on a grenade for you if we're in a foxhole, but giving you the last donut in the box, I don't know, especially if it's that chocolate old-fashioned, because I really, really like that. And we see just how petty we are and selfish when we can't even lay down our life in these small ways, in these small ways. In fact, this commandment to love others like ourselves, on the surface almost seems like a burden. I don't know that I could do that. I don't know if I'll be happy loving people in this way. When... What if nobody loves me back in that way? It's kind of a big risk, right? Especially in your own home with your own spouse or your own children or a coworker, or a family member who's kind of grumpy all the time. God, you really want me to, to love in that way? I just don't see how this is going to turn out better for me. And yet, we crave love so much for ourselves and demand it. We need to be loved. And yet we end up sabotaging the very thing we want by not extending love to others. You understand what we do there? We want love, but we won't give it. And you can't get it back until you give it away. Because if everybody is just like, I need to be loved, I need to be loved, I need to be loved, nobody's going to get loved. Lots of self-love going on in the world, but what this world needs is selfless love. Selfless love. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, then you will find it. So, the challenge is, Do you really trust God? Can you really trust God with this one? It's kind of a big one. It's a big deal. Your flesh will tell you, I'm never going to be happy if I spend all my time serving other people. And yet Jesus says, no, just the opposite will happen. Serve others, you'll find joy. Love others, you will receive the uh, love that you've been searching for. And, well, how do I know I can trust God? I mean, would God do this? Oh, wait. He's done it. Like any good teacher should. Practice what I preach and what I live. Lay down your life for others. There's no one in this universe that has more joy than God. So our challenge this week then is, do you trust God to do the same? He's not asking you to die on a cross. He's just asking you for your own good and His glory to just die to your own agenda and your own selfishness. Figure out ways, tangible ways this week to show love to others. What a great way to get ready for Easter Sunday. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for loving me. 
before the foundations of the earth, before I was even created, long before I even wanted your love. You loved me while I was still an enemy, and my heart was cold to your word. I would read it out loud in church and ignore it in my heart and in my life. Lord, thank you for that kind of love. To die for those who don't care for you, who shout crucify him with their life and their lips and with their heart. Thank you for the wonderful miracle you've done in my heart and all the hearts of all those who've ever been redeemed. To have a heart that loves you and loves what you love. So amazing, God. I pray if anyone hearing this is longing for that kind of love and haven't found it, that you would show them how they can have this kind of love through faith and trust and obedience to you and your word. To stop trying to earn your love, but accept the love you've given them in Christ. That they would receive the gift of salvation through faith. And they'd be free to start loving you and loving other people and experience the joy of salvation, the freedom to live for another, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.